to build a high-value, high-volume law firm in less than a year. Every minute that they are not working towards achieving that in some capacity, somebody else's. If that does not make you want to invest in yourself and invest in your business and invest in your people, no coach is going to be able to change that mentality for you. So today on the Bondator Podcast, I am very excited to have a relatively young lady that has started her own law firm. And within just one year, she is already on a run rate to break $500,000 in revenue. And that is quite an accomplishment for many uh, attorneys that go out and start their own firm. She does have some big law experience, but she found out very quickly that that was not the path for her. And uh, she brings a whole breadth of other experience that led her into be able to develop the systems that allow this young budding law firm to grow so quickly. And she is going to share a lot of those lessons with us here today. So Casey Tuggle, thank you so much for being here with us on the Pioneer Podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. You know, you're pretty fresh out of law school, only 27. You're an ordained minister. You know, some fun stories uh, around that, but it was a lot of the experience that you had before law school that ended up helping you right now. So I, I really like to jump into uh, what are some of the big lessons that, that people can take and let's, let's give some value to the folks right off the bat and then we'll go back and hear a little bit more about your story and, and how you got into it. Yeah. Um, so one thing that, you know, I, I've, I've told people is, you know, and, and this is coming from someone that I knew I wanted to be a lawyer from the minute that I was 11. Like I went through a custody battle with my parents and, you know, the family lawyer that sat down with me and met with me before he ended up taking on my dad's case, like that man is, is the reason that I do what I do. And he's the reason that I do it the way that I do it. You know, I, I, I really care towards clients that, you know, don't have a ton of money. Um, I charge really cheap rates. I don't charge for consultations. And a lot of times I find myself doing work for free because I know that the client deserves it. You know, all of that being said, I would not be here if I did not delusionally think at 11 years old that I was going to be just like Mike, you know, that, that attorney's name was Mike. And, and I was like, I'm going to be just like him. I'm going to, I'm going to run this firm. I had it in my head that I was actually going to go work for him, which he lives in an area that I would never live. So I don't know where that came from, but I had it in my head that I was, I was going to go to law school and I was going to, you know, do all these things. And at 11, you don't even really know what that means. Like you don't know that you have to get an undergrad degree to go into law school and you don't know that you have to you know, have all of these prerequisites and internships and things to get a job. And for example, like when I applied for undergrad, I only applied to one school because I was so delusionally confident that I was going to get in and thank God I did. But so I, I ended up, you know, going to undergrad at UGA. I had a couple of internships there in the family law space. I had already done a couple of internships in my hometown from the minute I started driving at 16. I was like, I got to go work for a law firm because I got to be a lawyer. I got to do these things. And, and so that kind of goes back to, you know, that delusion of you got to do like all of the things, everything you got to live it, breathe it. Like if that's your passion and that's, you know, where you want your life to end up, like you've got to be delusionally confident that you're going to get there and, you know, take all the steps to get there as well. For a lot of folks that, that maybe didn't have that whole experience, but came out and decided they wanted to start their own law firm, though, I, I've known a lot of people who have come through a lot of different paths and maybe didn't expect to, to do that. What do you tell them about, you know, developing that confidence and uh, overcoming like this imposter syndrome that some people find themselves in and when they're, you know, young, haven't broke 30 yet, but now they're, you know, the owner of their own law firm? Um, you know, I've actually, so the imposter syndrome is real. You know, I, I will say I never, ever, ever wanted to own my own firm. 
I never even wanted to be a managing partner. I wanted to work for someone. I wanted to get a paycheck. I wanted to go to work and be a lawyer. I did not want to be any of this other stuff, any of the other hats that I wear. Well, that quickly went out the window. But I will say, you know, I, I still have imposter syndrome, but I ask myself every single day, like, if I do not believe in what I am offering a client, why would they want to hire me? Like, if I am not sure of myself, how could they be sure of me? And so I ask, you know, when people reach out to me and they're like, how do I overcome that imposter syndrome? How do I do this? Or how do I put myself out there on social media? I want to start, you know, a social media engagement with clientele and all these things. You know, for example, get in the mirror and just start saying things to yourself. Just start saying like, you got this. Start, start talking about, you know, case law. Start talking about, you know, what you would say to someone in a consultation and do it over and over again until you believe in yourself enough to get on the phone and say that with a client. And, you know, it might take, you know, a couple months. It might take a couple years, but at the end of the day, it will come to you and it'll, it'll come to you in just a second. Like you will be talking to a client and you'll be like, oh my God, that was so easy. It was so seamless because I believed in it. And that's one thing that I think a lot of attorneys struggle with when they're, you know, having consultations with people. You know, my consultations might last 15, 20 minutes. And a lot of attorneys stay on the phone for, you know, an hour at a time talking to clients because they're like continuously digging that hole and trying to get that sale and, and you know, keep it on and, and, you know, trying another way and seeing what they can say to get that client to hire them. It does not take that long. If you come out the gates and you know that you are sure of what you're offering them, that client is going to be so sure of you and be like, how do I pay you? Where do I put my credit card? So that, I think that's very powerful. We can talk about, we could probably have a whole episode just on what you said right there because 15, 20 minute conversation or consultation that's uh, in, in sales is uh, it's kind of a uh, holy grail for a while. But I, I think the, the big thing that mm -hmm. I've heard and also believe in is that conviction is one of the most powerful elements of any kind of a sales process. It's not just the belief in what you do. That's got to be a, a key thing, but it is the, the belief in yourself to, to deliver. And I've seen so many people that were very confident and very competent attorneys, but when they get out, they forget that what they don't know necessarily around the business or the law firm operations, that, that doesn't necessarily make them a bad attorney. Right. They're still learning about all these other elements and that that doesn't have to get in the way of them still being a great uh, attorney and being able to, uh, to convey that confidence and be able to, uh, to convey that, that competence in their practice to those potential clients. A hundred percent. And at the end of the day, you got to fake it till you make it. You know, the, the day one of having your own firm, you're not going to know what you're doing. But if your clients think that you don't know what you're doing, they're not going to want to hire you. So you got to just fake it. And eventually you will have made it. You know, we're always continually on that journey too. And like for some people, there's you know, that old saying, comparison is a thief of joy, right? And so it's don't, I have to remind clients all the time, like don't compare yourself to, to where people that are, have been in it longer or that have already achieved some other level of success because they haven't followed the same path that you have, right? And you know, you've got a, a journey set out for you and don't forget how far you've already come and everything you've already accomplished, right? You will never ever probably feel like you've hundred percent got, because there'll always be something new to learn. You know, the law is constantly changing, but look back and know that you have made it far enough. And if you are still convicted about delivering good quality service and doing the best possible outcomes for your client, then that's all you have to continue to convey. And just make sure that you, your team are delivering on the promises that you make.
touched on this a lot, but as I was kind of like looking back through your story and, and some of the other things, I mean, you did, definitely did take a, a different path. You know, you were doing, you were working in law firms before you went to law school, while you were in law school. Tell us about some of that other experience that you were gathered and, and kind of maybe does set you apart a little bit from the typical path and how that's been able to help your practice now in the last year. I think just to put it bluntly, if there's a hard way to do something, I'm going to find it. Uh, you know, I am so stubborn and so hard-headed, and, you know, my best friend and I are very similar in that sense, and, and she might even be a little worse than I am, but, you know, I, I've i been through a lot. You know, I mentioned, you know, the custody battle with my parents ultimately being the reason that I, I want to do this for a living and, and being the reason that I was able to find my passion, which I'm very grateful for. To that same sense, I have been through the hard things, and so I have it in my head, again, back to that delusional confidence, that there's nothing too hard for me. You know, there, I've been through harder stuff. I can handle this. And so, you know, at, at 16, what business did I have having a job at a law firm? None. Zero. I didn't even, I didn't even know what I, I didn't even know what I was looking at, you know, but I was like, I'm going to learn. I'm going to start learning now so that by the time I'm, you know, 25, like I know everything. So I started working in, you know, my home, I'm from a very small hometown. I started working in my hometown attorney's office when I was 16. You know, that really assured me that, this is what I wanted to do. She tried to talk me out of it, but I was like, no, you don't understand. Like looking at this discovery, like this is exactly what I want to do. So, you know, while I was working for her during the day, I was taking college courses at night. And so those college courses would double as my high school credits. So I was able to finish high school a year early. And then also by that time I had my associate's degree. And so I took my associate's degree at 17 when I had no business doing this up to the university of Georgia. Um, I spent two more years there, but it was a part-time program. So I went to school at night, like three or four nights a week. Um, I would get out of class at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. It was terrible. And then during the day, I got a job working at, I mean, I'll just say who it is. I got a job working for Morgan & Morgan, largest, you know, plaintiff's firm ever. Um, everybody's got, you know, different opinions about them, but started working for them. Um, I don't even think I, I don't even think I could legally drink at that point. I think I was 20 and I started working for them and it was Honestly, you know, I can say so many things about that firm, but that firm and that position in particular put me onto the road to success to own my own firm. They trusted me and they gave me the ability to really like own my own ground. And it gave me the keys to be successful, like out of, you know, 5,000, 6,000 uh, case managers, paralegals, my, my numbers that I was hitting were like top three. And obviously I was compensated very well for that, but it also, you know, yes, I was churning clients, but my clients were doing so well because I was giving them that empathy that I think a lot of people that work in that like plaintiff's lawyer firm, they don't have, you know, they're churning clients because they want the money. I was churning clients because I was like, I'm helping so many people. And it was just like, it was amazing. And so that, you know, while that's plaintiff's work and obviously now I do family law, it has transitioned like tenfold into what I do now because, you know, it, it just depends on your passion, who you think is ultimately kind of going through, you know, a harder situation. I think, you know, this is apples and not even oranges. It's like apples and a green bean that you're comparing. But, you know, at the end of the day, that work at, 
at Morgan and Morgan, you know, learning systems and to be able to implement those systems and to become a top performer and to hit the high value numbers and the high volume numbers like that is what set me up for success. And a lot of attorneys, you know, that come out of law school with no legal experience, never have worked in, worked in a firm except for like one internship on a summer vacation. They don't have that same street cred. Like they can't implement a system. They don't even know what they're looking for to be able to do so because they don't know what's wrong. You can't grow a firm like that without having systems and just being there and learning through osmosis, like seeing how things run gives you such a, an awesome view, even at a small scale, how to, to implement because you can scale down those systems into to something that is applicable in a even the smallest of law firm. Much harder to scale up you know, the things that people say they want to have in a, a small law firm. The keywords I want to hone in on there, you mentioned like high value and high volume. I think those two things are really key to, uh, to growth because a lot of times people assume that it's one or the other, right? Like we're going to be boutique. We're not going to take on a lot of cases, but you know, we'll have really high retainers or either you know, we're going to be a mill or something like that where it's going to, to just be a lot of volume. But can you talk a little bit more about that mentality and, and how you build in those, those systems? And I'm particularly interested in hearing that because you mentioned you know, you don't charge really high rates and you don't charge consultation fees and, and are kind of weeding those out. So is it maybe a little more towards high volume right now or how does that how does that work out in a, in a small uh, family? I think family law is a little different. You know, in personal injury, I don't feel bad for getting high value from an insurance company. You know, I don't feel bad about it one second. But there is an element to me that struggles with charging family law clients a lot of money because I know what they're going through and I don't want to make it worse. And I think that that's, you know, one thing that my clients appreciate about me is that I have that empathy. I've been through this. I know this is hard. Like, I'm going to cut you a break on this. You know, I'm not going to charge you full price for this, you know, service, you know, et cetera. Whereas a lot of family law firms don't have a necessarily a personal passion for family law. They don't really care. You know, at the end of the day, it's a business for them and, and they want to make money. And I think that's fine. I think there's, I think there's space in the world for everybody, you know, so by no means do I think that, you know, doing it one way is, is right over the other. But I will say, yeah, when I was at Morgan and Morgan, it was high volume, it was high value, but you know, ultimately there was a space for me to do that there. I could have, a, a, you know, 130 clients at a time and I could, you know, rotate that case volume, but I could also do, you know, 1.2, 1.3 million in settlements, you know, per year. It was just possible because I was up against insurance companies that had the money. I had the clients coming in the door. While I did go to law school at night, I kind of worked all the time and, and I enjoyed it. That's like always been my passion. I love getting, you know, I don't love getting, but I do get a lot of fulfillment out of what I can provide to someone in, in a working space, whether that's healthy or not, you know, that's a conversation for another day. But, you know, transitioning over into family law. Yeah, I don't, I don't, charge consultations. I don't, I don't believe in them for, you know, my own personal business, but if other people want to charge them, that's fine. That being said, I don't spend a lot of time on consultations. I do a really stringent, um, intake process. Uh, my intake coordinator is, uh, well, my legal assistant, um, that doubles as my intake coordinator. She does a very stringent intake process. So I have a lot of the information before I even get on the phone with a client and a client that has looked at my website or that has looked at me on social media, they know what they're getting. They're getting a straight shooter. She doesn't really beat around the bush. She's going to give you the information that you need because at the end of the day, we, we got to move on. So clients generally know that when they're getting on the phone with me, like they're about to get a lot of information and then she's going to follow up with an email so that I can digest it a little bit more. So my consults are pretty short, but again, you know, 
that's because I cater to a certain person. Like if a, if a client is wanting to talk to me for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and they're like, well, I want you to explain that again, you know, because I'm not sure. I just don't think that it really applies to my case. We're not going to work well together, but I will refer them to a firm that, you know, bills by the hour and they are surely happy to take your $350 for every hour that you want to talk. But I explain to my clients how I run my firm. So I do flat fees on um, independent scope basis. Ultimately, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'm only charging people up front for what we're doing to, you know, file their case, um, their, their initial pleadings or a temporary hearing or that and settlement negotiations or something like that. So I'm not charging them a retainer for their full case value because I know it's very difficult to come up with that money. And so I let people give the money to me in smaller increments. And so it allows them to be able to afford me, appreciate me and want to give me the money. And those are three things that a lot of family lawyers do not have in their clients. Again, it goes back to, uh, to how you want to set your, your firm up and whatnot. I've known people that have had huge retainers, but that usually becomes one of the biggest hurdles is people could you know, love you to death, feel like you know, there was all this connection, but all of a sudden they're going through this situation and they've got to come up with- People don't have it. 5, people don't budget for lawyers. $5,000. And uh, you know, that's, that's still most and mo- mo- more than most people's mortgage payment. And it, it kind of blows their mind to, to make that shift, you know, it can be a, a big thing. Now they're having to finance, finance other things. So just giving them that opportunity to get started and then you turn some results and they get a good experience for you right away. Like they're going to, to be able to, to have it and to be able to continue. So I think that's a, a very interesting strategy that folks can, can learn from. Again, probably not right for everybody, but yeah. It's not right for everybody, but for the people that are willing to give it a shot, that's a way that you can see high value uh, in family law and, and still see the value coming in. Because if you've got, you know, yes, like, you know, let's say you've got 40 clients and you're charging them $10,000 retainers. Okay. Let's, let's change that. I value, or I have in volume probably somewhere between 80 and 120 clients at any given time. And let's say that, you know, the money that I'm getting in from them on a monthly basis is half of your retainer. We're all coming out, you know, in the same area. But ultimately, it's, it's a little easier for me to manage because I don't have to think about their entire case at one time. They've paid a contract to me for one specific thing, for one specific scope or one specific service, and that's all I need to focus on right now. So there's an end goal to me, you know, and, and let's say hypothetically, you know, a client is not able to pay for, you know, step number three. They're like, okay, I've run out of money. I cannot do this anymore. Like, I, I don't want to do step number three. No big deal. We don't have a contract for it. That's, I'll close your case. I'll give you some tips to kind of lead you on your way. But there's no big fight about, well, I can't handle this anymore. So I want the rest of my retainer back. I want, you know, whatever's in my trust account back. Like, I don't have to spend time doing that. And so there's, again, back to cost benefit analysis, you know, I'm able to spend my time on the clients that have paid for services, you know, that we're contracted for. Well, and, and you know, just chasing the money and uh, having, having conversations around billing is a uh, big question with a lot of clients. But I, I think it's very encouraging what you're, you're saying, though, because, you know, I've, I've known and uh, plenty of attorneys that have been in practice for better than a decade and still haven't broke. $500,000. And, you know, part of it is the, the billing, part of it is just understanding, having the right money mindset, uh, you know, around the value of their work, but also being able to work with people and have those kinds of models. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it can apply to a lot of different areas. Um, you know, I, I don't think that by any means that the old way I will say of billing in family law is, is wrong. 
but I do think it's a little outdated. I think that, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, and, and I'll say most of my clients are between the ages of 29 and 35, just as, as kind of a, a bracket. So obviously they're, you know, they're wanting to get a younger attorney and I don't think they realize quite how young I am. I don't know if that would really go in my favor too much, but you know, I think that at the end of the day, like there just has to be something that is more amenable to the people. Like we have to give people an ability to afford our services and they will get the same service with me as they would at the most expensive, you know, family law firm, but we have to make it possible for them to pay us. It's a lot easier for someone to come up with two grand per month for five months rather than it is for them to pay them, pay me 10 grand at one time. One of the things that certainly might have rubbed a few people wrong in there was that you haven't paid for big marketing agencies and you spoke to the the value of that group as just being a huge resource and you putting in the work. And what I loved and the reason I wanted to reach out to you is you said that you you were a a lawyer by day and a business developer by night. You've been putting in the work to, to understand and to implement these systems and to learn from other people and to learn from their mistakes and, and their successes and to be able to implement those things. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like, how, what is that process? Because it still just kind of blows people's minds and all of a sudden they're small and maybe they're just barely breaking six figures and all of a sudden they're going to go and pay a, a large chunk of their money to a, uh, a program to, to coach them on all these other things. What has been your secret? Well, I think that ultimately comes down to the individual. So if that person, you know, yes, the information is there. And the coach can give you the information too. You can get it from a coach. You can get it from a blog. You can get it from a Facebook group. You can get it from a book. You can get it from all these places. It's the person that has to implement it. That coach is not going to implement that information for you and, you know, implement that system for you and show you like, these are the parts of your firm that are not doing well and these could do better. That's an auditor. That's not a coach. And so at the end of the day, you know, do you want to go and spend a ton of the capital that you have now gained on a coach because you want to grow? No, start small, stay small for a little while. If that's what, you know, if you're wanting to make money, if you're wanting to put money in your pocket, start small, stay small. Your expenses need to stay low there. You need to keep overhead as low as possible, but there is a big difference in keeping overhead low and acknowledging when there is something that you need to outsource. Like, yes, you can pay for a marketing person or a social media content creator to have you a Instagram platform. You could pay some money to do that because otherwise you would be spending money creating templates, you know, on Adobe or wherever, uh, you know, scheduling them, posting them, coming up with captions, all these things. It would cost you more money in hours that you would spend versus, you know, spending that money on someone outsourced to go do it, you know, for you. And so, you know, that's a a big difference. Whereas, you know, if you're going to hire like a marketing agency, that's a whole different animal. You know, that's in line with like hiring a coach, which again, I I think is really unnecessary when that information is so readily available to us. You know, I was mentioning this to you before we started, but you know, like I love going into that Lawyers on the Beach Facebook group. I'm in a couple of other Facebook groups as well. And just going into the search bar, looking up Google ads, you know, uh, I don't know what the other kind of ads are. I haven't gotten there yet, but you know, there's a, there's so many things that you could just search for in those groups and get so many resources because people are out there to help each other. We've got so many resources available to us that are free. We've got, I'm going to mention a couple of books, but you know, there's books available to us. There's blog posts available to us. And you know, there's these Facebook groups, but at the end of the day, if you're not going to implement it, don't worry because it's it's not going to help you anyway. If you're not going to implement the the resources, then sure, go ahead and hire a coach and see what happens. It's just it, to me, it's silly. That's something that I'm I'm gonna live and die on that hill. 
I think that there are people that are coming through different environments, haven't seen anything, and maybe don't have, you know, built up quite that confidence or the practices, you know, telling themselves, saying affirmations in the mirror. Yeah, those are the things they need to uh, learn as well. But there, I've seen it so many times. Right. Exactly what you say. Like people go out and start making a little bit of money. Now they're investing it, which is important. You get you a basic website. You get your Google My Business up there. And if you will spend more time into making sure that your service is so good that people will tell other people about you or leave you not just a little two line, but actually tell the story of the value that you delivered for them. Like that can become some of the, the best marketing material that you could ever have. Tell it for the people in the back, Will. Tell it for the people in the back. That's, you know, that's one of the things that I've told people, you know, is in the beginning, like if you don't have clients coming in the door, if you don't have people beat down your door, go do some contract work for somebody and then get reviews from those people. Like ha- like you said, get, get a business profile set up on Google and get reviews from those people and get real reviews, like a real novellic review and have them outline your service. And and when people go to Google, like family lawyers in my area, and they see the reviews that you have, they're going to call you. That's how I did it. I, I did contract work for six months before I ever took on my own personal client. And so I had, you know, 10, 15 reviews from contract people that I had done contract work for. That's how I got people calling my phone and they're like, Hey, I found you on Google. I'll never forget the first time that I had somebody call me and say, I found you on Google. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know if I even showed up on Google. I wasn't sure if anybody saw me on there. There's so many, Hey, I, I've done whole presentations on just uh, the process of going because everybody like the biggest mistake that I'll, I'll say for folks is do not put that one line at the end of your closing letter that says, Oh, and if you liked our service, please leave us a review on Google. Like that is not going to, to cut it. You need to be going in and doing things from the very beginning, thinking about the review that you want them to leave you at the end and the story that you want them to tell. And if you do that, it is going to, to help shape not only how you speak to prospective clients, but who those prospective clients are, how you build your delivery systems in the, the back end. It can completely change your branding, marketing. You know, people talk about your, uh, you know, we talk about cultivation. You know, that lead comes in and now you, know, you can send them stories of clients that are like them, that they can relate to, not just general things for services that they're not interested in, but if you've got a single mom is about to get divorced, you, know, you send them other ladies that went through divorce. If you've got a dad that's fighting for more time sharing, you send them reviews of uh, other dads that you've helped get more time share. Those are the things that are going to, to resonate more than any SEO campaign or you know, Facebook ads or those things that have their place and are going to help you kind of scale to the next level. But getting started, it is all just about being able to be found, having that base credibility, but being able to build trust. And that goes to speaking to your ideal clients, unique problems and the concerns that they have. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that was one thing, like I, I actually saw a post, you know, of someone, they had not invested the time in creating any kind of online presence. They didn't have a website and, and they were like, do I really need one? And somebody commented on it and said, well, I've been practicing for 20 years and, and I've never had a website. You don't need a website. And I'm like, listen, we are pushing the 1990s, 20 years ago. Nobody was cranking up their dial up to go get on Google and find lawyers around them. That is not how they were finding any kind of family attorney. Like it is 2023 and you need to have a website. And like you said, like whether you create it on Wix or get some kind of template off of Etsy. Like you've got to create something so that when someone Googles your name, they know that you're real. Like I have a couple of friends that don't have websites and, you know, I'll recommend, you know, them as, as attorneys for clients. And they're like, well, I Googled them and they don't even come up. Like, who are they? And I'm like, why do people not have websites? I'm going to stop referring people to attorneys that don't have websites. 
Well, if somebody, just what you said, if somebody can't tell that you're you're actually real, that that's the only reason. I mean, it's like the, you know, the whole brochure, and people talk about all the things that you, know, you need to do in digital marketing. That, that's just the most basic thing for building trust and credibility, and in that order, because if they can't see that you're actually there, unless they're coming from, like, you know, the guy that didn't have a website, if he has long-term relationships and, you know, he's using strictly, you know, high-value referral partners, and, and those people are coming with a lot of trust, maybe he can be like you know the, the wolf in Pulp Fiction, right? And he's got the you know one little name on the card, and somebody's going to do that. But most people starting out aren't that, and so you need to have something out there that people can go and look because everybody's used to that. Every, you know, it's not buyer beware. Everybody knows that they can go on and find at least something to connect with and get an idea of who they're going to talk to. And if you don't have that, it's going to be very very difficult. Yeah. It's, it's still just me. I've got uh, me, my paralegal, and a legal assistant. And I will say, I, I remember being a paralegal. I was a paralegal for nearly a decade. I worked at firms where I wasn't, you know, trusted to copy something. And I was trusted at firms to, like, run the file. Like, tell me what I need to know going into court. People don't realize that, like, a, a legal assistant and a paralegal, like, someone that is supporting an attorney and that truly cares about what they're doing and, and that care can kind of be built. We, and we being paralegals, we love to be trusted by whoever our supervisor is. Like if we are given a little bit of that autonomy to make executive decisions on files in any kind of capacity, and I'm not saying, you know, direct, like where the case is going to go, but you know, to be able to have like independent conversations with clients. Like I know people that don't allow their paralegals to talk to clients because they don't want to tell them the wrong thing. That's crazy to me. So, you know, you can find a team that has no legal experience whatsoever and you can build them into being the best paralegal that you have ever had. But as far as, you know, investing in, in your own people, you know, I've got a paralegal and a legal assistant. We all work remotely. Uh, one's in South Carolina, one's in North Carolina. Trust them. I, I don't ask them to tell me every minute that they spend on every file. I tell them at the end of your pay period, tell me how many hours you worked and I will send you a paycheck. And I don't have the time and I don't want to micromanage people. You know, if it gets to a point where I feel like I'm not getting the value from their work, that they're telling me that they're putting in, then obviously we'll have a subsequent conversation. But at the end of the day, you've got to trust your people. And if your people don't feel like they trust you, they're not going to care about you and the work that you are doing. You know, that's another thing, like we'll talk about spending money on coaches, but they want to pay their paralegal like $3 an hour. And I'm like, no, pay them appropriately. Like they are giving you a lot more value than this coach that's giving you the same value that you could have read on a Facebook page for free. I think it goes back to just what you were saying, too, about you know, marketing, coaching, and everything else. It, people understanding value is a huge thing and the, the opportunity cost of your time. Because when you have a team that you can trust, now that opens up more capacity for you to be able to serve more clients. And even if you're on an old the billable model, right, like the more billable hours that, that you have available to, to produce work, that's going to be more revenue, more income. And then eventually you're going to go to that point where more of that's going to go to a paralegal, more of that's going to go to, a, to the associate that you hire. And eventually you're going to have so much revenue that you're living the lifestyle that you want and you have profit left over to be able to invest in agencies and coaches and other folks that can help you get past whatever gap or obstacle you've got. All those hours that you're spending doing something that you could be paying a paralegal or a legal assistant $15, $20 an hour, that's what you're paying yourself. Figure out what those tasks are and what's the highest value of your time, and that's going to expand your capacity to get high value and high volume. 
Are there any other of the, the lessons that you've seen in the, the industry, maybe just in the, on your own practice? Anything else that you think people should know to, to kind of move out? If they feel stuck, if they're in that solo position, where they, they, they feel like they're struggling, maybe you know, they need to take the shingle down and, and go back to, to big law. I mean, what, what are things that, that they need to shift in their mindset to, to be able to help them get to, to that next level? Yeah, I, I think if, you know, one thing that people really don't think about, if they are open to constructive criticism, and sometimes it might not always be constructive, but figure out why someone didn't hire you. Ask for feedback. Like if it, if, if 30 days later, you know, a lead did not retain you, reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I understand that you're not going forward with my services. I was just curious as to why and if there was any feedback that you could provide me that could provide a you know a, a, an opportunity for improvement for a future prospective client and you know any any feedback that you could provide me at all they will give it to you like if a, if someone is not hiring you and they get an email from you like that and they know that it, it is that authentic they are going to provide you feedback but you've got to be willing to take it like if they tell you you know I feel like you just kind of talked over me the whole time and and didn't allow me to um, you know really vent or or, you know, I don't feel like you provided me like a safe space to, you know, give you information, like yeah, whatever well, it is. I mean, and it may not even the, be that intense, but, things you know. Heard what were uh, uh, the examples that, that you got doing that process that you were able to go back and, and change? Um, no, there, well, the biggest thing has been um, an explanation of money. And so there's been like clients that have told me I didn't fully understand like how the billing was going to work and I feel like it was too good to be true. And so the second that you, that I hired you, you were going to then ask me for another $2,500, another $2,500, another $5,000. And so that then told me that I needed to do a better job of explaining how my business model works, because I know it's very different than what most family lawyers do. And it's also a very new idea. Like a lot of family, like it's, it hasn't been around very long for people to do limited scope services or for people to do, you know, flat fee. I mean, flat fees are not that new, but it's newer than what a lot of family lawyers, particularly in my area, offer. And so that told me that I needed to do a better job explaining my billing because I don't spend a lot of time talking about, or I didn't spend a lot of time talking about billing in my consultations. They're already very short. And so I wanted to provide as much value to my prospective client as I could. And so I wanted to give them information that they could use, whether they hired me or not. Like if you go forward, this is what you need to do. This is what you're looking at. This is the legal standard. This is how it would apply to your case. And that's not what I needed to be spending the entire consultation talking about, maybe half of it. But then the other half, I needed to be closing that sale by telling them this is how my billing practice works. And so if you hire me, this is what the next 30, 60, 90 days are going to look like. And once I implemented that, I've closed most of the, of the leads that I've gotten. Just a, a plethora of knowledge. So the uh, very last thing to bring this all together at the one thing that you sent me before, you said comfort is very rarely profitable. And, uh, and that led to uh, this little message on the board. So what is the, the overarching lesson of that? if people haven't already been able to pick it out of everything. You know, I, I really think that people need to understand and, and recognize when they are making excuses and they need to know that the money and the clients and the lifestyle that they want, like if they want their business to be running while they're sitting on the beach, it's all out there. Every minute that they are not working towards achieving that in some capacity, somebody else's. And that needs to make you want to be a lawyer by day and build your business at night. Like if that does not make you want to invest in yourself and invest in your business and invest in your people, I don't know what to tell you. No, no coach is going to be able to change that mentality for you. Fantastic. Okay, Tobo, 
thank you so much for taking the time to share the story and all of these insights. I am quite confident that it's going to be very inspirational to the folks. And I hope that everybody can, that has been listening, can take all of these lessons that Casey's given us and go put them into your business and grow something great. Be well.